I was listening to that and other Lennon music on the way here. And I'm like, damn, man, is this Lennon or Jesus? You know, <laughs> like they talk about Lennon in the way that he's like a messianic figure. Yeah. On the Wikipedia page, they said that people wrote him letters and like ballads for his 50th birthday. And he was mortified. He was like, no, please. Yeah. I don't want this. You seem to be missing the point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just very strange. Man. I wonder how much of that comes from the fact that he lived such a, rel a relatively short life, or at least a, a short life as a leader. And so he's like we... the biggie of communism. <laughs> he did like a banger album and then died. What the fuck, man? Hello. Hey. Welcome back. Welcome to episode two of Left. Unread. Unread. I was like, behind, behind, behind. <laughs> it's not behind. Not left behind. Left unread. Not Kirk Cameron's favorite film franchise. I've seen now two of the movies and like the seventh um, sequel to the book. Yeah, it's like a whole thing. There's a whole underworld of weird Christians that are really into it. The rapture, man. Well, I mean, I yeah. All of... <laughs> Rapture porn. I love like the way that Christians talk about revelations because it's fucking crazy. You know, have you ever heard those conspiracy theories where it's like in the Bible when it talks about the great dragon, that's actually talking about the state of China. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's going to no. rise up and take on the American eagle. Like, I swear to God, I had a friend who was you like, hear the call. He was part of like Church of God. And he was saying that his dad literally believed that something in the Bible, I think it was in Revelations, had to do with like literally the US and China. And he's like, it was foretold by the prophets. Jesus. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Welcome. Not that. Welcome back. Hopefully yeah. you, uh, hopefully you did the reading. This is my teacher coming back through. <laughs> no. Um, did you do your homework? Yeah. Hopefully you've been as energetic as we have in reading this newest piece of theory. No, I hate this. <laughs> Those nice buttery tones. Yeah, I liked I your know. voice on that. Wonderful. Welcome back to the show. My name's Aaron. My name's Will. We're two guys reading a bunch of leftist literature yes trying to figure out what the fuck we're supposed to do with our lives we're starting from square one yeah pretty at, much i think you should as i think you should yeah and so last week we read principles of communism hopefully you enjoyed that episode i sure did hopefully our audience did as well and this week we're reading the state and revolution yeah we jumped straight to lenin straight <laughs> from marxism to lenin interesting to talk about square one though i was thinking about that earlier because you'd think that if we were going to start at square one, the P place would be the manifesto. You start with Marx. Yeah. yeah. Well, we did start with Engels, I guess. But, you know, I like to group them together in my mind, as of right now, at least. But yeah, it's an interesting idea. Where is square one? You know, is it right? Is it proper for us to go from principles of communism into something like state and revolution like this? I don't think that there's a set pathway that we need to be taking, but it's an interesting discussion. I think that even in this book, when he talks about none other than Karl Kotsky. Which he talks we, a lot yeah, about he, Kotsky. He sure does talk about Kotsky a lot. You know, I did some digging into Karl Kotsky, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, okay. but they talk about him on Wikipedia as an orthodox Marxist. And I think it's interesting how quickly we are to lump together Marxism-Leninism mm. into just Marxism at all. That's an interesting take. You're talking about the same thing that I think a lot of people face whenever they try to jump into any sort of new world. Like I think of philosophy as an example of that. Where do you begin if yeah. you want to start studying philosophy? What's the right place to start? I think the answer is where, wherever you want to start. Wherever you start is the right place to start. But the difficulty with philosophy and I think with 
talking about Marxism, is that every writer in history is developing from and building off of the writers that came before them in history. And so there's an impulse to want to go back and read all of that, understand all of that. But at the same time, I think it's specific to Marxism. Marxists, good Marxists, should have been doing self-crit the whole time around, mm. like looking back at failed and successful socialist projects and reevaluating their the theory, their process from that point forward. So I think jumping to Lenin isn't necessarily a bad thing because Lenin definitely loves Marx, yeah. talks about Marx all the time. Certainly. But I think learned more through his experience and the, you know, the gap, the time gap between, say, the Paris Commune and where, where Lenin was working from and knew, I don't know, how to apply it differently. So it was, there's almost an impulse to want to start with the more recent stuff because they should have learned from and reassessed. Yeah, I think let's circle back around to this because this is one of the key questions I wrote about this text. Okay. Well, yeah, so we're reading State and Revolution by Mr. Lenin himself. Yes, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. Uh, last week, I love to correct myself. I said something horribly wrong, but this time I'm saying it right. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, uh, otherwise known, more properly known as Vladimir Lenin, was born into a middle-class family in Simbirsk, then a part of the Russian Empire. He took up revolutionary socialism after the execution of his older brother in 1887. He was expelled from university, protested the Tsar, was arrested for sedition, and exiled to Siberia, although not all at once. Upon return, he cemented himself as one of the most prominent Marxist scholars and figureheads, as well as one of the most influential people of the 20th century by, of course, spearheading the Russian Revolution alongside Leon Trotsky. Here's a fun fact. Bolshevik just means majority. I didn't know that. Menshevik just means minority. So they literally were just saying the majority party, the minority party. I didn't know that either. He was a prolific writer until his death from a mostly unknown illness, but he had three strokes. His works include such topics as the right of nations to self-determination, imperialism, and of course, the state and revolution. Yes. Begun in 1917 while Lenin was exiled in Switzerland under the Second Duma and finished in Russia mere months before the Bolshevik Revolution, the State and Revolution is perhaps Lenin's most important work. Lenin uses the State and Revolution to steadfastly denounce Kotskyist parliamentarism. And as he seeks to clarify Father Marx's meaning and intention, unyieldingly arguing for true revolutionary practice in the face of revisionist reformation politics. Both a call to arms and a call to action, the State and Revolution rejects the possibility of parliamentary government leading to the emancipation of the working class and calls upon all proletarians to revolt against the state, leaving nothing but the dictatorship of the proletariat standing over the fresh corpse of the former state. I was in a mood when I wrote yeah, this. Yeah, you were killing it, man. <laughs> but the dictatorship of the proletariat standing over the fresh corpse of the former state, leaving its shell to wither away as all proletarians move forward into the Marxist utopia. Yes. Love that. Yeah, so we, for clarity, we read the first three chapters this week, and next episode we're going to finish the text with the other three. So we're focusing just on chapters one through three today. Knowing that Lenin was a great critic of his writing and never fancied himself a particularly good writer, mm. 
I was expecting this to be pretty dry and kind of difficult to get through. And that was not my experience with it at all. Yeah, I'm happy to say that Lennon is funny. And like he's he's like grinning as he's writing this. Like he's he is not throwing darts at a picture. Of yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's t he's taking every opportunity to tear down Carl Kotsky. But also, like, he's throwing punches. Like, I love, he says it in there, I quoted it even, where he says that it's a blow from the shoulder, like, to social Democrats, like, the, the way that they're interpreting the Marxist text. It's like a blow from the shoulder, like, they're sparring, mm. you know? Like, these political ideologies are standing and fighting, and Bolshevism is out here fucking throwing haymakers. That's a fun image to conjure. Yeah. 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 He's funny. I, you know, and it's weird to say that. Maybe that's, like, solidifying me as a big dork but um i think lennon is having a good time writing this hmm. i wouldn't have thought of it that way That's he feels really i mean at the least he feels firm in his message like he feels resolute oh 100 yeah, you see that yeah. dripping from every word yeah and i think part of that is he is appealing to a public audience here i don't want to speak too authoritatively on the russian revolution or anything but he is still trying to rally power he's still mm -hmm. trying to convince a people to do violent revolution in a time where people are looking at an era of change and saying now's the time what do we do and lenin is trying to get them to do violence which as he talks about a lot in the different parties have a hard time doing you know mensheviks mm -hmm. and srs even sr stands for like social revolutionary but they wouldn't do armed revolution yeah you know it's important to remember i think that these aren't just theoretical pieces but also pieces aimed at a public, pieces meant to be read by a people being called to action. Yeah. I think it probably makes sense for us to talk about, before we dive deep into the text itself, mm -hmm. like overall, what was your take from the first three chapters? Yeah, I think the first three chapters were really interesting and they gave me a kind of a picture of my own blind spots. I think that this question of the state has been a question on my mind since I kind of got into this side of politics is like, how necessary is the state? And I think that this text widened my image of the state into something that it wasn't before. You know, the idea of a state, especially if we're thinking of what is possible in the future, I think was previously still in terms of the state we have currently. And I think reading this text gave me a clearer image of the fact that, like, we are making a state that is not necessarily a state in the way people think of it. Mm -hmm. I already kind of bought in, it's not the right way of saying it, but I had already kind of bought into the idea that violent revolution was going to be necessary. I think part of that comes from the fact that, like, you can see how rooted capitalism is in our society today. It seems, like, completely unshakable, unbudgeable, mm -hmm. unmovable. So that part of it wasn't surprising to me. I mean, I expected Lenin to talk about smashing the state machine. I love what shall replace the smash state machine. Like, that's a, a certifiably dank title. <laughs> Impossible not to love that. Yeah. But I think the conception of the state is really the thing I took away from the, the three chapters here. And the fact that I don't know shit about history and I need to learn more about both of the revolutions mentioned. Although, just to speak broadly, like the revolution of 1848 was really a series of revolutions that happened across Europe, not just one. Yeah. So. You know, I sent you a picture of my post-it note with my two big yeah. takeaways uh, when I was reading it. Number one is that Lenin hated Kotsky. And seemed to hate everything that he represented, which he yeah. thought was some sort of misappropriation of Marxism, an allegiance to parliamentarism that Lenin seemed to feel was perpetuating the state, not doing anything to move away from it. And then number two, that I just don't know shit about history, and I definitely need to study the Paris Commune more uh, and understand exactly what that, what that was and how it shaped 
clearly Lenin's view of what revolution had to look like, because I yeah. would agree that it's quite evident that he is arguing for violent revolution because he sees it as an inevitable action. Yeah. It's inevitable. But I, I don't know where that comes from in the context of, say, what he learned from the Paris Commune, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know enough about the Paris Commune either. And I think that this alone put the, a book about the Paris Commune on our list. One thing that's interesting to talk about Karl Kotsky is, I mean, it seems settled in the historic debate that Lenin was on the right side. But, you know, when I was kind of looking into Karl Kotsky, he had denounced Lenin because he said that the Russians had done a revolution prematurely, mm -hmm. right? And it's a question of, this. they talk about opportunism a lot in this book, which if you look it up on like a Marxist glossary is to throw aside one's Marxist ideals for like personal gain or for some kind of amelioration, some kind of reform. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to think of opportunism in that sense, if you're thinking about the position that Lenin was in, did they start the revolution too early? I don't know. I think if we were to look more into the history of Russia, especially like 1917 to 1923 when Lenin died, that would be the kind of the top question. It's like, is this a premature thing? Surely you and I both believe that Lenin had an ideal state in mind when he was enacting these things. Mm -hmm. But what became of Russia afterwards is been debated a billion times sure know? and i mean there are even like schools of thought that say like the people state died with lenin i don't know it's an interesting idea it's a curious question i should say because in the popular which you know communists are marginal anyway in the popular imagination like lenin's the victor in this debate and kotsky is a, the dipshit he's mm -hmm. the revisionist he's... lenin is ali standing over the over yeah exactly Frazier. it's like does anyone even read—I'm not playing devil's advocate here. I don't give two shits what Karl Kotsky said, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. But does everyone just say, oh, Lenin had it? Karl Kotsky's a dumbass because they are reading Lenin. The question about it being a premature thing, I think, is an interesting one that I hope to understand more when I learn more about the history of the yeah. revolution itself. Lenin speaks on this when he says that Marx, <laughs> before the Paris Commune popped off, Marx was like, any attempt at revolution would be a folly. and then. As soon as the battle was presented to the workers, Marx was like, yeah, let's do the damn thing. You know, mm -hmm. they, they had uh, attacked heaven or like they were doing a heroic battle. Yeah, well, because it's about seizing the opportunity that's ahead of you. You met 100 percent. That's true that Marx was like, it's too early. Yeah. But then once he saw it happening, he was like, OK, well, it's happening. Let's do it. Yeah. We're not going to half do it. We're going to do it for real. You know what I mean? So I think there's something to that. Yeah. I think that totally leads back into the question of like. You know, last week we talked about, is it too early? Like, are we throwing it all away? I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about the vanguard, the idea of a vanguard party. You know, what is the responsibility of us to incite or lead a revolution? And at what time? Yeah, that's one of the things that really, one of the things that always weighs heavily on me. And one of the spaces where I've had something of a crisis of conscience was around like, I'm not Lenin, you know, I don't have that gravitas. I don't have that charisma. I don't have that position for leadership. I don't feel like I have that the qualities of leadership that someone like him does. I, I said the same thing about Fred Hampton. Like I don't have the charisma. I don't have the ability or it doesn't seem to be within me to be a leader of that caliber that can galvanize the people around a movement that can develop and build a resistance. And I felt really bad about that for a very long time. Like, well, what the fuck am I even doing then with my life? I believe all of these things, but I'm doing nothing to follow through with them. Then that just makes me a fucking phony or, a, you know, a hypocrite or, you know, some sort of like, what do you call it? A paper tiger, something yeah. like that. And I think that that can 
be really paralyzing in a way that I think can stop you from doing anything. Yeah. And I learned to comfort myself by saying, like, I'm not a Fred Hampton, but I will always follow a Fred Hampton. You know, when the next Fred Hampton appears, I'll be right I'll be by there. his side. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a really interesting thing because I feel much the same. You know, I've never been a leader. And even I've been told, I've told you this before, but like, I've been told that I was like a natural advisor, you know, like the second, <laughs> the second in command, like the, the right hand guy, the fixer, whatever the fuck that means. What a fucked up thing to tell a kid, that, by the that, way. That is a really backhanded compliment. Yeah. And I feel the same. And it's like, we're not seeking to be like the fucking, the godhead. Like, I'm not trying to be the prophet. Like, the words from my lips are not going to change the earth. Mm -hmm. That's not the purpose. But, I mean, it's the same question that has led us to do this. It's like, we need to channel this into something that's more productive than just sitting around reading to ourselves, essentially. Yeah. And I had that thought on the way here. It's like, you know, and I urge anyone, you, me, and anyone listening to this as well, to do something and to have those discussions because, like, to just read something on a uh, off of paper and then like stew on it isn't going to change anything. It's not even going to change yourself. I think you really have to push those ideas against other ideas to form them into what is actually going to matter. Yeah, I have one other kind of overall take: mm -hmm. the space where I come from, the circles that I've come from, the political circles that I've come from. There is a lot of sympathy or support for anarchism mm -hmm. as a movement. And I would qualify myself as just as much an anarchist as I am a communist. So I, I feel pretty much in that ANCOM sphere where I, sure. feel, I feel allegiance to both sides. But Lenin is definitely pretty harsh on anarchists. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it comes around this question of what are you supposed to do with the state? Yeah. And it seems like his primary complaint against anarchists is the idea of the abolishment of the uh, the state being some sort of immediate thing yeah. that happens at the day of the revolution, and then we we go forward from there. And that did a lot to really challenge my ideas and thoughts, because I certainly, what I've always said, and I think I said something like it on the last episode, was that I don't get why anarchists and communists fight all the time, because they have the same goal in mind, because the idea is that it's a stateless, classless, moneyless society that's the definition of an anarchist utopia and a Marxist yeah. utopia. But like this idea of the reason why communists might look less favorably upon anarchism is because of that kind of absolutism or something like that, that anarchists maybe correctly or not are being characterized in Lenin's work. It's a really strange discussion that I've been thinking of a lot about recently because um, I've been reading the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill, which is about the Manson murders. He was tasked with doing interviews of celebrities and just asking them, how did the Manson murders affect you? And he started to discover like discrepancies in the Manson case. And it just spiraled into this like 20 year investigation. Hmm. Part of it, he looked into the CIA's program called chaos, which is literally meant to drive disunity between leftist groups in America. And I'm just, the CIA did that yeah, like, <laughs> right. And I'm not so conspiratorial to be like, mm, all of this infighting is because the CIA is doing a psyop, an astroturf. no, but I'm just curious, like, how much of this beef comes from something made up, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not saying, like, hmm, all these lefties should just sit down and talk to each other and kumbaya. No. But I think that in an earnest discussion, in a good faith discussion, there's more to agree on than to disagree on. And I think that I'm not saying anarchists don't read, but um, if anarchists were to read this, I think they would agree with it. You know, I yeah. think not necessarily like a centralized government, but the idea that obliterate the state machinery and then create fair, equal, open. What did he say? 
a beautiful, make this the new slogan, but he literally wrote elective, responsible, and revocable. That should just be the motto of every goddamn institution that we have. Mm -hmm. Because replacing the state with those kinds of institutions is something that I think anarchists would agree with in a heartbeat. Right. And they already advocate for those kinds of syndicalist unions like workers shops of, yep. you know, it, it's like a communal Communes, production. Yeah. yeah. Like that's something that they are already amenable to. It's just the fact that they've been told like, oh, communists want a big authoritarian dictatorship. And I don't care too much to talk about like the linguistics of things, but it's clear that when Marx and Lenin say the dictatorship of the proletariat, they don't mean a dictator. Yeah. Right. I mean, they say that even. We don't mean a dictator. We mean like the proletariat needs to be the ruling class. Yeah. Lenin pretty clearly in one of the quotes that I think we're going to talk about mm -hmm. kind of digs into what that means, the dictatorship of the proletariat. But I would agree. I think that when I've seen communists criticizing anarchists and I've never encountered an anarchist that was critical of a communist. So maybe it goes one way. Okay. I'm I'm just more online than you, Johnson. I'm well, sorry. I think that that's what it is. It's like how many of these people have in earnest or in good faith actually spoken to the people that they're talking shit about? Because, yeah, they probably would have a lot more in common than they think. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even when I did organizational work, which was very short, like we collaborated with anarchist groups. Of course. Like we did stuff with anarchists all the time because they were people that were doing the same things we were. You know, especially in like mutual aid programs, direct action, not direct action, but like neighborhood assistance and shit like that. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Every Food Not Bombs is an anarchist run organization that also includes communists. That's just the way that it works. Yeah. Anyway. Let's jump into chapter one, shall we? Chapter one is called Class Society and the State. And I was thinking we would just, we've both collected quotes from the chapter that yeah. we like. So the problem is we're reading out of two different editions. So I don't know. It would be nice to go in order. Yeah, just to, just to <laughs> I guess, give you some context. I'm reading the first Well-Read Books edition published by Well-Read Books. And yes, I'm reading from the Dover edition, Essential Works of Lenin, What is to be Done in Other Writings. In chapter one, mm -hmm. Class Society and the State, the first section is called The State as the Product of the Irreconcilability of Class Antagonisms. Whew. In the very first paragraph, he says something that really jumped out to me. He writes, after their death, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons, to canonize them, so to say, and to surround their names with a certain halo for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping them while at the same time emasculating the revolutionary doctrine of its content, vulgarizing it and blunting its revolutionary edge. Yeah. And I wrote Che and MLK in the margin here. We're recording this right near Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I think that this is what liberals and moderates do all the time with MLK is that they find the quote about the content of their character and they quote that and rob all of the revolutionary leanings of the man. Not to mention the fact that I know that when he was courting Coretta Scott King, he was writing letters to her talking about how he is a socialist and all mm. of this. And no one ever talks about that. They cherry pick the quotes that they like to neuter him, to what does he call emasculate uh, yeah. the revolutionary doctrine of the person. It just spoke 
really deeply to me. I absolutely MLK was the first thing I thought of here because of the way that it's just been completely co-opted to to console the people. Like it says here consolation. He uses the word consolation in the in the mm -hmm. text, but it's like to soothe you know, just like we had talked about in the last episode, just like to soothe those issues to the point where they're not going to do revolution. Even later on, when they're talking about how social, when Lenin talks about how like Cassius and social Democrats are just quoting Marx to quote Marx, he says that these Marxists quote this in the same manner that one bows before an icon. Yeah. You know, it's like the ideal is propped up as a means of, I don't know, like hand wave almost, you know, like pigeonhole whatever revolutionary ideal there is yeah mlk is definitely the first person i thought of in that regard too yeah and i thought of che guevara as well i think the idea the iconography of che guevara has been so bastardized to the yeah. point that i think most people will know his silhouette and know nothing about what he did as a revolutionary that's certainly where i was i mean it even kind of tinges my a desire to read him, you know, like I am sure that he's written great stuff. Like we have the motorcycle diaries on the list, yep. which I do want to read. I don't want to fall into this habit of being a person that quotes the same book and the same writer all of the time. Mm. It's like, I'm a Marxist. I've read one book, but this quote about that we're talking about with MLK and, and Che and everything like that, it does speak a lot to Guy Debo's idea of recuperation that yeah. I mentioned in the last episode that you can cherry pick just pieces of a revolutionary's message to make it seem as though you are championing something of value while at the same time doing that smooths the the, the edges what would you say dulls the sharper points of the the rhetoric to a point where you then change the perception of that revolutionary and their all of their revolutionary message by doing that I think that segues perfectly into the kind of the next thing I took from this chapter. And it's the way that Lenin talks about social Democrats distorting Marx's message. I love, first off, just to speak to Lenin's comedy, I love the quote right in the beginning where he says, all social shamanists are now Marxists. And then in parentheses, he writes, don't laugh. Like he just knows you're like chuckling to yourself because I literally, I did like the, the breathy, like I blew air out blew of my nose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I, you know, don't laugh, but I think it's really interesting the way that Lenin talks about people using Marx's literal words in a way that is antithetical to what he says Marx means, especially yeah. when it comes to violent revolution. Like, I love the quote where Marx says, literally, the working class cannot lay hands on the ready-made tools of the state. I should probably find that actual quote. Talking about that, about people's, quote, well-meaning references to Marx, the mm -hmm. next thing that really jumped out to me in this first section is this bit where he says, according to Marx, the state is an organ of class rule and an organ for the oppression of one class by another. It creates, quote, order, which legalizes and perpetuates the oppression by moderating the collision between the classes. I thought that this was an interesting commentary on this idea of prioritizing order over justice. Mm -hmm. Again, I had MLK on the brain while I was reading this, and I was thinking about negative peace. You know, yeah. He says in letter from Birmingham jail that white liberals prefer a negative peace. They prefer the absence of tension rather than the presence of justice. And yeah. I, I thought that that was very appropriate of Lenin as well. I really love the way that Lenin talks about the state here. It's both something that is completely different from the state we have today, but it also uses pieces of it. I love the way in the beginning of this book that he talks about the state floating above society, but it's apparent of society. It comes into being in response to societal conditions, right? The existence of class antagonism just like 
births forth the state because the ruling class requires some organization of power, some yes. organization of violence to keep down the oppressed classes. Mm-hmm. I love that he says that there cannot be like a bottom up organization because of that split. There can't be a people's movement in this bourgeois society because those class antagonisms are not only existent, apparent, but irrevocable. Like they cannot be soothed. They can only be smashed, essentially. The state can only oppress rather than reconcile. And I just think that the it's maybe when we look when we get more into like more Marxist theory of the state in general, where they talk about the base and the superstructure, which is things I only barely know about, Same. we might see more of that idea where like the base informs the structure, the structure informs the base. And I guess that's dialectical thinking as a whole. But it's just interesting to think of the state as something that comes into being as a response to material conditions as opposed to something that is created. Whereas when we smash the apparatus of the state and then replace it with something that is a replacement of our creation Mm -hmm. a great quote is when he says the army and the the police are tools of the ruling class how can they not be yeah exactly yeah and that was like i heard that quote forever ago it maybe could be real could be fake but it was a quote from stalin that just said the police are a tool of the ruling class and even before I was a communist, I was like, that's just an obvious statement. Yeah. You know, the police aren't a separate body. They exist to put down the people. And the army is just an extension of that. If all else fails, if anarchy prevails, not anarchy in the cool sense, but anarchy in like the chaotic <laughs> sense, then like what is to fall back on here? It's the National Guard. Yeah. They will roll in the tanks if it gets to that point. They will drop the bombs on Pittsburgh or whatever if it gets to that point. They will firebomb housing projects yeah. in Pittsburgh? No. They would never do that. Never! Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are, at the end of the day, extensions of the power. I mean, they're tools of power. Yeah. They're tools of force. Yeah, to be that nerd. (laughs) Uh, I mean, in V for Vendetta, the police are called the Fingermen because they are a part of the hand of the state. Oh, wow. Okay. Didn't that that wow sounded really sarcastic, (laughs) but I actually was like, oh, okay. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the state media apparatus is the mouth. Wow. It's a pretty on-the-nose metaphor. (laughs) Okay. Okay, moving on. Lenin talks a little bit about class antagonisms. The quote is as follows. If the state is the product of irreconcilable class antagonisms, it is a power standing above society and increasingly alienating itself from it. It is clear that the liberation of the oppressed class is impossible, not only without violent revolution, but also without the destruction of the apparatus of state power which was created by the ruling class and which is the embodiment of this alienation. Yeah. Yeah, that's just exactly what you were saying. Yeah. They talk about this later, but using the old apparatus leads to the same shit. Lenin talks specifically about revolutionaries in Russia where he says what used to be positions filled by the Black Hundreds, which were like the fucking anti-Semitic People's Guard or whatever, like fascist black shirts, essentially. Mm -hmm. Those positions were then filled by cadets, which were like the petty bourgeois, like the officers' corps. And then they were filled by the Mensheviks and the SRs. The same positions, the same corruption was just refilled by new people. And I think that's like a very clear example of like, you cannot use these old systems for new results. Mm -hmm. And I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, One other thing that he says in this chapter, in section two, special bodies of armed men, prisons, etc., Lenin talks a lot about specifically what institutions the state has as coercive power, like what coercive institutions the state has. I don't know how better to phrase that. 
But I really love right in the beginning of the second section where he quotes Engels and says, the state first divides its subjects according to territory. And then Lenin says that this division seems natural to us, but it cost a prolonged struggle against the old organization, according to generations or tribes. Just to talk again about this being rooted in history, Lenin is talking about how we're assuming the state as like a preemptive natural thing. It's hard for a people to imagine society without a state, especially today. Mm -hmm. But those natural divisions cost us decades, centuries of war, intertribal conflict and all sorts of things, especially in like the history of Europe, I guess. So I don't know. Again, it's just the idea of this state is not it was not always there. It was not something that's like born out of a vacuum. It's not something that's from on high. It's not naturally forming. Yeah. But instead, it is a reflection of the conditions. It's a reflection of like this conflict and the struggle that's happened through history. Kind of like state realism or something like that. Yeah. Combating against the idea that it always has been, always will be kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not super deep into this, but in Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson, he talks about the origin of nations and he says that nations strive to be without history. They strive to be as ancient as can be, even if they are newly formed in the, even in like the scope of history, if they're mostly recent, they still set themselves out as in like incredibly ancient because that's part of their nationhood. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's maybe one we should read. Lenin wrote about the right of a people's to self-determination, the national question a lot. And that's, I think, a really serious question mm -hmm. because if our idea is to create a utopia, which I don't like the word, to what degree are we going to allow peoples to self-determine, to create their own state? And I think that's just something that, that's just a, a bit of reading that we're going to have to do as we get more and more into this question, because those people exist, whether we like it or not. And they are a group, whether we like it or not, based on certain ideas, cultures, beliefs, and this and that. To what extent are they also requiring of a state, quote unquote? And I think to kind of get back, I got off track there a little bit. When Lenin's talking about the state in this, he's definitely talking about a very different kind of state. Yeah. Not, again, to reference the ship of Theseus, but as we keep destroying the old apparatus and then these institutions that Lenin's talking about putting into place wither away, yeah. that state, in heavy air quotes, is not really a state in the same sense. Yeah. I think that withering away is, is a big part of the chapters moving forward, so we'll definitely get back into that. Yeah. But this idea that this transitional phase yeah. of the state mm. is an important part to Lenin, but he's not suggesting that we need to maintain the apparatus of the state in the way that it was previously, obviously. Just to put it into a personal perspective, that's always a gotcha that relatives will be. Do you want the government to control everything? And my answer is always not our government, not this government. Yeah. I'm not imagining this government in charge. That's not what I'm advocating for. Believe it or not, yeah. I would love the people to be in charge. I'm not thinking of this state, and neither is Lenin. Yeah. Continuing in the second part of chapter one, we're talking about how the state apparatus is designed to perpetuate the power of the ruling class. The police, the military, those things are extensions of the state apparatus, yeah. extensions of that. And he says, Lenin writes, a state arises, a special force is created in the form of special bodies of armed men in every revolution. By destroying the state apparatus, demonstrates to us how the ruling class strives to restore the special bodies of armed men which serve it, and how the oppressed class strives to not to create a new organization of this kind capable of serving not the exploiters, 
but the exploited. Mm. I wasn't, I had to read that a couple of times, to be honest. I, I read it a couple of yeah. times because I was thinking about it in a very kind of elementary kind of way, thinking about, say, like the police as an, as an embodiment of that. And I don't think in a post-revolutionary world we would have an apparatus like the police that that looks anything like what we think of as the police today. Yeah. But there would there would still be a need for a military, for example. Right. There would still be a need for that, but to protect the interests of the people, yeah. no longer to protect the interests of the state, so to speak. That's something I was thinking about a lot, because Lenin in this talks about a organized, armed population. And I think that, first off, I don't think it's possible for everyone to be armed. I don't think it's possible for everyone to be armed and organized. And I think that that division is, by necessity, a division. You know what I mean? Like, mm. if there is a body of people that is armed and organized, the people outside of it are outside of it. It's tough to conceptualize a society without a separate body that is the police. Mm -hmm. I think that in a more historical reference, anytime that there's a revolution, they'll normally do like a worker's militia. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that it still becomes a standing army. The army is separate from the people. The police, that special organization, is still separate from the people. They're not institutions that are massive and massive meaning like popular and democratic and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's not something that Lenin clearly defines here is like, how do you create a mass organized armed population without creating a hierarchy, without yeah. creating a class division there, even if it's not necessarily class, but just like a division of the means to do violence, the means to have power, to do enforcement, coerciveness and all that. There is an inherent hierarchy there. Yeah. I, I agree with armed you. and not armed. Yeah. Like that's that's it. And yeah. that's tricky. But I do understand when Lenin's saying that like there needs to be a body there because the oppressors will there will be resistance. Resistance is impossible to avoid. I actually quoted that part as well, where he says that every revolution by destroying the state apparatus, you quote it just after this, mm -hmm. shows naked the class struggle. Yeah. That class struggle is laid bare and there has to be some body put into place to bring it back, just like you had said. How do, how do you create a body that suppresses resistance? How do you create a state that represses resistance without creating additional hierarchy, without creating, and I think that that state becomes hierarchy. That state adds a hierarchy to it. Would you, this is going to show my ignorance, but would you say that that's an essential part of Lenin's kind of ideology around like the vanguard party? I mean, there's there's obviously a hierarchy in some to some degree there as well. It's interesting. I don't know too much in this regard. The idea of a single party is one that I think to us in the West is kind of stomach churning because it's so central. And it's like, you're either with us or against us. But the idea is that there's one working class. So you should have a party that represents the entire class. Lenin, is a, Lenin preaches for something that's called democratic centralism, where everybody votes, but then everybody follows the result of the vote. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't want to get into a discussion of like the tyranny of the majority or anything, but that's the idea. And so to have one party, a vanguard party, is like the party that represents the entirety of the people. But there's mm -hmm. some discomfort I have with that. I would just say for my idiocy. The illusion of a choice is not the presence of a choice. So like the idea that we don't in the United States have a singular party, yeah. an oligarchical yeah. like ruling party. It's also think, crazy. I think it's in like our liberal conception, you know, the idea that there has to be a plural amount of parties. I think the idea of one party is the idea of one thought. And I don't think that that's what Lenin is saying here. He's like diversity of thought, unity of action. I think that that's literally a quote from something. 
it's really tricky. It's tricky. How do you organize this society afterwards? You know, what shall replace the smashed state apparatus? My next quote is kind of talking a little bit about this, so I wonder... No, go, go ahead. Okay, well, so when we get into part three, the state as an instrument for the exploitation of the oppressed class, he writes, we must also note that Engels very definitely calls universal suffrage an instrument of bourgeois rule. Yeah. And to your point about the kind of like stomach-churning liberal Western ideology, that did kind of sit with me in a way that I was uncomfortable with. Yeah. Reading that line. In my notes, I wrote, anti-universal suffrage. And then as I read further, I went back and crossed out the anti. Yeah. Because again, I think that the suffrage that Lenin is describing is one that is like more massive and for the people. They say in here that universal suffrage in Germany is just to, it shows the maturity of the working class rather than the, like the will of the people, I suppose. Yeah. There, there was just something about it. I mean, the quote, he continues, he says, universal suffrage Obviously, summing up a long experience of German social democracy is, and he quotes Engels here, an index of the maturity of the working class. It we cannot... Have, we have different translations. Oh, Mine really? says the gauge. The gauge? Yeah. The gauge of the maturity of the working class. Heads oh, up, listeners and readers. Okay. <laughs> you might have a literally a different translation. Interesting. That makes sense why I was having so much trouble finding the quotes that you were reading earlier. But when he quotes Ingalls, he says, an index of the, or gauge, of the maturity of the working class, it cannot and never will be anything more in the modern state. And when Lenin goes on in the next paragraph, he says, they themselves share and instill into the minds of the people the wrong idea that universal suffrage in the modern state is really capable of expressing the will of the majority of the toilers and of ensuring its realization. And it, the toilers is so, <laughs> mine just says working people. Really? <laughs> I'm so sorry that you're reading like the ye olde English <laughs> ye olde. <laughs> of, of linen. Okay, maybe my tune is changing on Mr. Allen Woods. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I agree. The bourgeois system has bourgeois results. Yeah. Right? It benefits them. It is an apparatus put in place by them to benefit themselves. It will not do anything for us. Yeah. Vote blue no matter who is what I'm saying anyway. <laughs> you know? Ugh. Yeah, so I will say that was my experience reading this. When I was getting through this section, I was like, I'm pretty uncomfortable with what I'm interpreting out of this. Yeah. But as we continued through, I started to realize, or at least my attitude toward it started to shift, because I, it became clearer to me that he wasn't suggesting, he wasn't suggesting something about how the people shouldn't have the right to yeah. vote or something like that. They shouldn't have any say in the political leanings of, a, of, of the new world, but that the vote as we see it yes. is a yet another mechanism of the bourgeois state. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, you see that even today. You yeah. know? And I think that, just to speak more broadly, like the trend of non-participation in the system of government is a result of that. I love in chapter two when he talks about the people seeing the, bitterly witnessing the connections between the bourgeois and state. Like the people know that the state is a tool of the ruling class. It's not something that benefits them. It's something that exists to oppress them. The working people see that and internalize that and they realize that connection. And I think that that's true. Like people are aware that the government isn't there to help them. Our government, at least. Yeah. People know that. And I think you more easily find someone that dislikes the government than someone that likes it. Yeah, and what's funny is that people across the supposed political spectrum have the same level of distrust for the government. They just yeah. react to it very, very differently here in the States. I think that people just have a really fucked up conception of the government in general. In America, especially, 
by the people for the people nobody believes that yeah but imagine a government that was literally that that's the kind of government that Lenin is describing here yeah to touch again on universal suffrage like he's clearly a democratic person he's in favor of greater democracy they even say that in the text here win the battle like when Marx says to win the battle of democracy that's a crazy statement like I don't think anyone thinks of democracy as the battle like that yeah something that this calls to mind it's going to bring me back to one of the quotes and then I'm going to throw in a new one is that I think a lot of Lenin's stuff has to be understood in the larger context of the message a lot of his statements have to be understood in the larger context of what he's trying to say overall because I think if you do kind of cherry pick or just a particular quote like the universal suffrage thing for example yeah. it could be easy to see it and misinterpret it and or weaponize it against mm -hmm. lenin and his rhetoric overall and i think i definitely had a little bit of that reaction while i was reading it but back to that quote about the special force that's created to serve the ruling class and how he says the oppressive class strives to create a new organization of this kind i was like why would you want to create a new police force kind of thing was my thought but then he goes on, this is actually in section four, where he starts to talk about the, quote, withering away of yes. the state. He talks about a special repressive force, and this is apparently coming from Engels as well, but he says, from it follows that a special repressive force for the suppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie for the suppression of the millions of toilers by a handful of the rich must be superseded by a special repressive force for the suppression of the bourgeoisie by the proletariat. And this is, I think, maybe the first time that he name drops the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's the sort of thing that I think, again, very easily could be pulled out of context yeah. and been turned into like, you want a totalitarian government? It's really, I love that because Lenin specifically addresses that concern. He's like, the difference is that this is not a minority suppressing a majority. It's now a majority expressing their will. Yep. Like, that's such a distinct, and it's important because it's not, that's the difference. That's a fundamental difference. Yeah. We're not talking about the same violence. It is still violence on like a philosophical sense and a literal sense too, but it's a different violence. And Lenin is really clear about that here. There's a really fine line that Lenin is treading between like, we are the specialized vanguard, the educated people that will lead the other people. This is a massive, the will of the people movement. That's like a really tough line. He's at the same time listening, leading, and educating all at once. That's an interesting take. I, I hadn't thought of that, but that's 100% true. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, because especially... That's like the nature of a vanguard yeah. in and of itself. The peasantry was not viewed as a revolutionary force. That's the point I'm making here. Lenin addresses that here. Yeah. He says that Marx did not believe in... Uh, well, he didn't see Russia as a place where revolution could happen because he thought that a developed bourgeois was necessary. A, a developed bourgeoisie was necessary for a revolution to happen. The means of production had to be built up enough for them to be seized. And then in order, they had to be built up enough to be utilized for the people. And he didn't think of the peasantry as that. But what Lenin is saying is that you can take the peasantry with you. They will follow and then they'll learn as you go. And that's a very odd thing, because I think especially if you think about America, like imagine trying to preach a communist program to the peasantry. <laughs> what you mean is imagine calling what you're talking about communism. Yes. Because if you just explain the outcome, they would be on board. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But then once you call it communism, their McCarthyism training yeah. kicks in and they're like, mm, not them reds. I mean, it gets to the point here. Lenin talks about Marx explaining the call for cheap government. When they said the reactionary call for cheap government, I was like, oh my God, this is like every Republican saying we need a smaller government. We want states' rights. But then immediately in their actions, they do big government things. Oh yeah. It's it's the same idea here. It's like we can have a big government that is in fact a cheap government. We can have a centralized system that by eliminating the tedium of bureaucracy and the oppressive nature of the state, I don't know, like the inner workings and hierarchies, the billions of thread interlinking the bourgeois to the state and the army and whatnot, which he says in here, then we can make the government cheaper because we've eliminated the two biggest expenses, the bureaucracy and the army. And it's like, that's exactly like the ethos of small government. Like we should be eliminating these things that are digging into our lives. But in reality, we're still talking about having a bigger centralized government. And I'm thinking about the call for the implementation of institutions in the place of the state. The creation of the new state that will then wither away is the idea of these ultra-democratic institutions, which is one that I, I like, because that's a question that's on my mind. What will we, repl what will we replace the smashed state apparatus with? Mm -hmm. Right? I'm just going to get it tattooed. <laughs> that's a great question, and it's one that haunts me. And I'm not bought into the answer being the commune, mostly because the commune is still tinged in my mind as a pie-in-the-sky pipe dream, not like a historical fact that really happened mostly because I don't know anything about the commune or the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The question of what kind of state should we put into place is an important one. And I think that there are examples of institutions that do the kinds of things that Lenin is talking about here. We have institutions in place in our society that are effective, democratic, and meaningful. Think of the CDC, the EPA, even the FDA to some extent. The things stopping these institutions from fulfilling their mission is the interference from like the ruling class yeah from bureaucratic the, meddling right yeah. and if like we were to eliminate the systems that are causing that then those institutions could flourish that's just something that really spoke to me because when they, as soon as they started saying institutions i was like do we have institutions that are already in place i do agree with lenin's idea that the old state needs to be smashed we can't just use the the tools of the old state there are bodies that are good in our society. I'm not saying burn it all down. I'm just saying that like we need systems that are in our favor, controlled by us, us being the proletariat. I am and have said burn it all down, but uh, <laughs> I literally have a song called Burn It Down. But I agree with the sentiment, I, and I agree with Lennon on, on that as well. This idea that we need to see to the dismantling of and ultimate removal of the state apparatus, but there is good that can come from certain institutions or certain things happening on a larger scale like that. And we can and should use that. Yeah. I, I think the idea is if we're thinking of a big government, rather than one huge central power, a bunch of really effective institutions is a better example if we're trying to paint a picture for the, the popular eye. We're still in chapter one. We're still in chapter one. I have two quick things. This mention of the free people's state. Yes. He's talking about this as something that the social democrats in Germany were using as like a like a slogan for themselves. Yeah. And he says, however, that it was an opportunist slogan for it not only expressed an embellishment of bourgeois democracy, but also a lack of understanding of the socialist criticism of the state in general. And then the part that I really like, 
He says, we are in favor of a democratic republic as the best form of state for the proletariat under capitalism. Mm. But we have no right to forget that wage slavery is the lot of the people, even in the most democratic bourgeois republic. And so this idea that there is basically no such thing as a free people state. Yeah. And that's why you shouldn't use that as a slogan, because it allows you to accept half measures and move forward only so much while also forgetting or not caring about the idea that there is still wage slavery and other forms of oppression happening under this apparatus. Yeah, just, just to give it some historical context, what Lenin is referring to, I had to look this up, is um, a state in Germany that was referred to as the free people state, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think it blends back into his idea that the, the apparatus cannot be taken, it must be smashed. You know, like they cannot say that this is like a free people state because that lends itself to the idea that what they have currently is working and is workable, I should yeah. say. Whereas Lenin is like, we are in favor of that, but that kind of, we still need to destroy the old systems and put in place our new systems. I don't think that Lenin has a problem with the idea of a free people state. It's just calling yourself a free people state in this scenario, like in this time and in this context, which I guess they were doing in Germany, is what Lenin is, is going against. It feels to me like a form of like false consciousness or something like that. Yeah. Kudos to you for doing additional reading and, and <laughs> understanding it in the historical context. I certainly didn't do that. But what it evoked in me was this idea that people would believe themselves to be free if they existed in the supposed free people state, not recognizing all of the ways that they are, in fact, not free. And so it's problematic or counter-revolutionary to use rhetoric like that and or stop there. Not that a communist would speak against the reforms that might be happening in the supposed free people state, mm -hmm. but that that's not the end of the movement. Yeah. Again, it's like the end goal is different. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot that Lenin talks about where it's like cautionary. Don't do these things because it might lead to a breakdown. He's talking in a more practical sense where he's saying like, if our goal is to do this and that, like to smash the state apparatus and replace it with our own, it would be advisable to avoid these kinds of things because they lead to maybe the idea that we can just use the old state system or that we can do reformism or that we can, mm -hmm. that we don't have to do a violent revolution, filthy Kotskyists. <sighs> the last thing that stood out to me from this section, he goes on for a, a bit about this idea with the free people state. Yeah. And then he closes it. He says, whereas in reality, this supposed state presents no consistent and revolutionary conception of the process of social development at all. And I, I think that's what I was taking as the primary caution against this kind of opportunist sloganeering or something like that, is that it's, it closes off any conception of true social development from, from actually occurring. And so, I don't know, that spoke to me a lot, I think, coming from a space of U.S. politics where so much of it is, so much of the rhetoric, at least in the mainstream, is about the quote-unquote left, which is really just like this centrist liberal party, you know, the Democrats and their centrism. And this idea that even the, like, most moderate reforms proposed by the Democrats that usually still aren't even put into practice, even those sorts of moderate reforms are not actually forms of social revolution or social progress. Yeah, I think that, again, it's like we are still pro anything that ameliorates the conditions of the working class. Yeah. But to think that those steps alone are going to change anything on a, on a level that is significant I think is a fool's errand. And so does Lenin. I do love just to talk again about 
I thought this was funny. I I can't say everyone did, but I just love the paragraph before where he's like, out of every 10,000 people who read about withering away, 9,990 are completely unaware. And then of those 10, nine don't even, it's like, we're talking about a classless hierarchical society, but if he's like, there's a thousand, 10,000 people read this and nobody gets it but me, yeah. I'm pushing my glasses up my nose. A little bit of paternalism in yeah. there. I feel like I'm going to be saying this every episode, man. What right do we have to lead the people? Is it simply because we've read all this fucking theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does that thing a few times in this text, though. It's like, out of 100 people that read it, 99 will misinterpret it. 99 cases out of 100, if not more often. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, in this day and age, we think of the end of history like socialism is dead. But in the 1900s, like there were, quote, socialist, unquote, countries. There were countries with socialist programs. I mean, there were countries with socialists in Parliament. There's a whole bunch of socialism that happens in between Marx and the USSR. And I think, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's something that I think that maybe in the big picture, Americans especially don't see because they're trying to think of communism as Soviet communism. And I think that that's another thing that we're just going to have to look into. I'm not super well read in this regard, but I don't know shit. It's a construction of America. That's America's construction of history. All right, moving on to chapter two, the state and revolution, the experience of 1848 to 1851. We get some gems. A lot of stuff in here. First off, if you're worried about communists being anti-universal suffrage, this chapter does a little bit to alleviate those concerns. Yeah, assuage that concern. Yeah, for one, Marx specifically talks about winning the battle of democracy. He is talking about elevating the masses to the point where they are in charge, which is the, the entire conception of the state in this book right? The organization of the proletariat as the ruling class. And I think that that's really the critical thing. It's like we are still in favor of democratic institutions in the long run. That's a pretty succinct message that's given here is that communists are not anti-democracy. They are, in fact, for a greater democracy than we currently allow. Which is actually the will of the people. Yes. Yeah. The first quote that I found here in chapter two, I think, speaks to that. After quoting the Communist Manifesto, he goes on to describe the dictatorship of the proletariat. And he ends that section by saying, the exploiting classes need political rule in order to maintain exploitation, i.e. in the selfish interests of an insignificant minority and against the interests of the vast majority of the people. The exploited classes need political rule in order completely to abolish all exploitation, i.e. in the interests of the vast majority of the people and against the interests of the insignificant minority consisting of the modern slave owners, the landlords, and the capitalists. The capitalists. It's the same thing we were talking about earlier, right? It's still an organization of violence. I mean, that's something that is specifically, Lenin talks about the state as an organization of violence here, which I like. But again, it's the majority suppressing the minority. Yeah. The landowners and the capitalists. (laughs) The landowners and the capitalists. Yeah. A peaceful submission of the minority to the majority. That's what, you know, social Democrats are believing in. It's like, they'll just give up their power, bro. Trust me, bro. Just one more election, man. Trust me. Just vote. Just vote, bro. Just trust me, bro. Just trust me, bro. Just one more election. This is the one, I promise. (laughs) We're stopping fascism. Anyway. Another thing from this section of chapter two which I think calls back to something from chapter one where Lenin was talking about prioritizing order. And I had likened that to the the kind of negative piece. He says, as against this, the now prevailing opportunism breeds in the ranks of the workers' party representatives of the better paid workers 
who lose touch with the rank and file, quote, get along fairly well under capitalism and sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, i.e. renounce their role of revolutionary leaders of the people against the bourgeoisie. This is kind of Lenin's shitposting again. Like, I think he's kind of rallying against, speaking out against this form of opportunism or something that comes about where there are people that, like Kautsky, he's definitely pointing a finger... Look, Karl Kautsky! Yeah, uh, directly, pointing directly at Kautsky, but this idea that because they are getting along fine, so to speak, in the system, they're not the ones that are carrying the massive weight of the oppression that's happening mm. under the state because they can get along reasonably well under it that they don't they don't move forward toward the revolution and instead renounce their role as potential revolutionaries and i thought i i don't know i that really spoke to me and i also thought it was funny that i it feels like lenin shit posting he does a straight fucking call out he's like yeah that he talks about like a position that gives 120,000 rubles and he's like one of the menshevik ministers have taken this role and it's like yeah that's pretty much it, man. I mean, I saw in your notes you had mentioned AOC. It's like the reactionary socialism kind of like espousing these ideals. And then as soon as you get into power, you throw away all of that because you have a newfound link to the bourgeois. Like you have you have lifted yourself. Yeah, I think I put Fetterman and AOC in the notes, if I remember right, because Fetterman like did a fucking 180. Yeah. I bought into the rhetoric when he was running. You know what I mean? Me too. I was like, oh, he's actually like a. Yeah. A straight shooter. He's talking some shit. I was like, this is a left liberal. I think that I, I fell into his like shit post mostly because I, he was running against um, Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz. And I was like, there's no way that Dr. Oz is about to be a senator. Like, I must be anti Oz. Yeah. You know, <laughs> anti I must be anti Mehmet. Okay. Fetterman, man, <laughs> used the rhetoric, you know what I mean? Weaponized it as, as a yeah. certain way and then has just completely turned. And or more appropriately, shown his true face, yeah. shown the, the person that he was the whole time. Right. Did nobody look on Open Secrets and say that he was taking like thousands of dollars from APAC this whole time? Because I didn't. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I yeah. said that sarcastically at first. And then I was like, nobody probably did. Yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Maybe I should start. So I think the big question really is. What will replace the smashed state apparatus? Mm -hmm. All caps with spaces in between. That's a banger of a question, and it's a tough one. We said this in the overall piece, but they say pretty definitively that the commune is the like antithesis of the bourgeois state. You know, it is the opposite. It's what must be put into place. And they base that experience directly off of the experience of the Paris commune. And I really do appreciate the way that Lenin talks about Marx being very evidence-based. He's like, you know, it's not just, it's not on the vibes. He was looking at what forms of what political forms came about from real experience and i think that that's important because what the hell are we going to do when we blow this thing up let's use some different verbiage there what the <laughs> hell what, what the hell are we going to do when this thing is smashed passive voice by the people not by me specifically government i am in favor of democratic institutions but i also think that if you have a bunch of different institutions how far removed is that from the state? Like, if we just had a billion different three-letter agencies that controlled every part of our life, would that be better or worse? Yeah. I don't really know. It's like towing the line again. That's kind of what I was going to say about this section or chapter two, kind of in, in general. I only picked out a couple of things from chapter two because the second section of chapter two is called The Revolution Summed Up. Yeah. And what I do think is good about it is where he starts talking about the kind of what is to be done question or like what, what happens once the state is smashed. 
sort of thing. But the there's a lot in here that I just don't have the historical context to truly understand mm-hmm. or I think fully grasp what he's trying to to drive home. But he gets into talking about imperialism. And then at the end of chapter two, in section three, called The Presentation of the Question by Marx in 1852, that's where I started to see stuff that spoke to me again. Mm. Lenin says of Marx, the theory of the class struggle was not created by Marx, but by the bourgeois before Marx. And generally speaking, it is acceptable to the bourgeoisie. And he continues by saying to limit Marxism to the theory of the class struggle means curtailing Marxism, Mm. distorting it, reducing it to something which is acceptable to the bourgeoisie. A Marxist is one who extends the acceptance of the class struggle to the acceptance of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yes, this was really speaking to me because it helped center my belief in a way. Before I would ask the question, am I even a Marxist? Is Mm -hmm. it fair to call myself a Marxist? And I think that the answer is yes, because I do believe in elevating the proletariat to a dictatorship of the proletariat. I've heard the term class reductionism thrown around a lot in the last couple of years, and I think that that's kind of missing the point of Marxism. It's, I mean, it's, it's exactly what Lenin's saying here. It's that you have to also, in hand with that class struggle, be in favor of changing the system in order to be considered a Marxist. Yeah. And not that I'm trying to gatekeep Marxism or anything like that, but I think that if we're going to unite people under one banner, then there needs to be a uniting message. And I think that it's a bit of an issue when you're having messaging come from all these different places. This idea of should I call myself a Marxist or not, I I think is an interesting one that I wrestle with because, kind of back to what we were talking about before, I'm not a Lenin, I'm not a Hampton. Right. And so is it fair to call myself a Marxist? You know what I mean? Because that's that's like some sort of self-imposed gatekeeping or something like that. But I think it is fair to call myself a Marxist, like you said, because I believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat. I believe in the idea of bringing the people up, giving them full democratic control, self-determination, stuff like that, right? So I believe in that. So it's fair to call myself a Marxist, but I also feel kind of like a phony for calling myself a Marxist because what have I done? You know, I was just now thinking about Fred Hampton again, where all the speeches where he's like, I am a revolutionary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, what does it mean to be a revolutionary? I think that it doesn't necessarily mean like calling for revolution. As in like, people rise up, seize the arms and like, let's fight. I think that you can be revolutionary and radical in a way that doesn't require you to be a capital R revolutionary, like throwing the Molotov cocktail. Yeah. I think that that kind of like chant, like I am a revolutionary, you can be a revolutionary and a Marxist without doing those actions necessarily. It's in a matter of your belief. Do you know what I'm trying to say there? I I do. I understand. And there's even still within me a part of myself that's resistant to accepting that because yeah. I, I don't want to, I, I don't know what it is, where this force comes from, but this idea is like, well, I'm not, I'm not throwing the Molotov cocktail. Right. I'm not out here liberating I talked about liberating animals before. I'm not out here, you know, torching factory farms or whatever. Yeah, I think it's, I wouldn't do that. I think it's a I feeling of CIA, uh, FBI. Yeah. I would never do. Sure such would things. not. Sure wouldn't do that. No yeah. firebombing here. I think it's a place of guilt. I think it really is. It and has, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, and I've seen this before. Before I was like an egregious communist. 
my buddy was really depressed and he's like capitalism is killing everybody around me like he was literally seeing his friends be put down and killed like mm -hmm. seriously injured becoming sick and dying because of capitalism that guilt was getting to him to such a point where he was like depressed over it you know and i can understand that more and more and more as we as i kind of delve deeper into this thing because i don't want to be like oh ignorance is bliss we should be stupid about it but seeing it really is painful it's like a soul-wrenching thing and the same thing happened when i was in teaching to see the system laid bare really broke my heart yeah you're watching kids get ground up by a machine sometimes willingly jumping into it yeah. you know sometimes you are not pushing them into it but like you know you've opened the door like you've yeah you're a part of the mechanism you're starting the yeah. you're starting the gears grinding. you're you are yeah. a gear like yeah. you are one of the wood chippers like yeah that yeah. sucks and the same thing the same thing especially living in the global north participating in bourgeois society and being not wealthy by any means but well off enough to live without like the pressures of capitalism being on me every single day in a way that they would be to someone who's living like paycheck to paycheck mm -hmm. someone who's you know under the poverty line that kind of thing but there i mean i feel like we could have a whole episode just kind of talking about this guilt mm -hmm. but shit man i mean back to the thing that he said here earlier where he says like renouncing the roles revolutionary leaders of the people against the bourgeoisie because we live we get along fairly under capitalism i feel that i yeah. i'm like i live a very privileged life by many standards i I live comfortably, you know, I, I don't worry about money in a way that a lot of people do, that people in my family do, my family has, you know, I, I, I live a comfortable life in that sort of way. I have access to everything that I need to survive. I have meaningful relationships with other people around me. You know, I, I love my wife very much and uh, I have good friends. So like I have all of these privileges of, of all of these things being bestowed upon me while at the same time not being targeted by the state in any meaningful way because i'm cisgendered i probably associate more with being pansexual than being heterosexual but whatever sure um you know I, i'm a white middle-aged white yeah. guy male presenting so like a uh, sign male at birth all of this sort of stuff that means the eyes of the state and the hands of the state are typically not pointed directly at me. And so I can get by very easily, very freely. And so there's something in me that calls to be more of that, what you called capital R revolutionary, because yeah. I'm also seeing all of those things happen around me. I'm seeing people get targeted. You know, I'm seeing people getting murdered in Atlanta oh, with yeah. their hands up getting shot 57 right. times in the tent. Oh my God. I see those things happen. And my reaction is to say, like, that's bad. That shouldn't happen. But shouldn't I feel guilty for that being my reaction? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there, there should be a revolutionary reaction to that. This has gone in a completely different no, direction. No, I but... think it's, it's still a totally good point because I'm not saying we're champagne socialists, but, like, that's kind of how it feels sometimes is, like, we're espousing these ideals. But even, even when I with, was in a three-letter organization, doing marches, like, felt performative. You yeah, know? I, a lot of that. All of those things were not anything that I felt were revolutionary in the sense that we're currently talking about. I would agree with that. Yeah. And the, that's a question. It's like, what is truly a revolutionary action? Speaking as somebody who is a fucking leftist podcaster now, God damn it. <laughs> is that a revolutionary action? Yes and no. In my mind, we're part of the liberal to communist pipeline as of two weeks ago, but it's tough. Like, is that revolutionary enough to assuage my guilt? That's the real question. Yeah. And on top of that, 
if that's my sole goal, getting rid of that guilt, which it's not, mm-hmm. um, that's its own fucking can of worms. Yeah, philosophically, if the drive to be a revolutionary is coming from a means of merely assuaging your guilt, then that's not really a revolutionary action in yeah. the first place. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I think as a person formerly in education and a coming from a person soon to be formerly in education, I think when I was younger, when I was a younger man, mm-hmm. and I was first getting involved in politics, my belief was I need to be involved in direct action. Yeah, And so I started doing some things. I started involving myself with different organizations, doing some stuff. And then I found myself pretty quickly disillusioned with that action. I felt, again, there's an element of it that's performative. There's a question of every time you do a march, the question is like, well, what is that actually done to change anyone's material condition? Yeah. What is that done to do anything to advance the cause? And so then there's, there's a guilt that comes along with that. I got disillusioned with it, and I became more isolationist in my politics. Uh, and then after a time, I began to feel guilty for that. Back to the education thing. The yes. reason I mentioned uh, us being educators is that for a long time, I rested on some laurels about this idea of, well, what I'm doing is exposing kids through education, through my classroom, through the content that I teach and the way that I teach it to a pathway toward radicalization. You mentioned the liberal to communist pipeline. One of my former students sent me a meme about having lunch with your English teacher to becoming a communist pipeline. And I just thought it was hilarious because that was 100% what happened to her. But anyway, so like for, I felt like for a long time, this is my form of political action. I'm going to try to radicalize as many people as I can through a good education. So like one, arm them with an ability to communicate. And two, teach them that reading is the only thing that arms you against oppression. So then they can become a radical as they move forward into adulthood and, and hopefully like develop a revolutionary movement in that sort of in that sort of limited way and i felt that's a fucking joke to have told myself that narrative that that was something at all i think is absurd in hindsight i have a current student who i recently not in the context of a class but one of our kids Mm -hmm. you know like the kids that we have lunch with the kids that we talk to outside of school One of our kids, while at lunch, I was lamenting to my wife that literally nothing I do has value. And this student got very offended at that notion because he was like, I'm right here. Yeah. And I was like, my, but my point was, and what I expressed to the student was he was going to be okay no matter who his English teacher was. He was going to go on the path that he's going on no matter who his English teacher was. He might feel that he needs my wife or I to get through the day, like in the form of emotional support or Mm -hmm. feeling less alone in an an existential sense. But like me being his English teacher, I think has done nothing to change the course of his life. And I told myself for a long time that it did change the course of people's lives. You know what I mean? In a way that I think is like just bonkers stupid. And and I I feel guilty because I'm not even going to be doing that anymore. Well, I think that it's a rippling effect, you know, like the, the smallest actions can ripple onto a lot of things. Like just listening to you speak now, I was thinking about the earliest radicalizing moment I had was when my, say, ninth or 10th grade social studies teacher assigned us to read A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Yeah. Just the first chapter, just to like 
get a glimpse of how fucking horrific we were to Native Americans, yeah. an image which I had never, ever been taught before, ever, essentially. Like, we knew about all the genocide and shit, but not genocide. It was like, oh, we came and took the land. Uh. But anyway, even if I didn't consider myself to be a radical, a communist, a socialist, whatever, until six years later, that moment still had an effect on me, even if I didn't know it at the time. You know, and so I like I think that those actions are presenting themselves to different people in different ways, regardless. And like, I do hear you when you're like, that kid would be okay anyway, but not necessarily. It took one teacher for me to decide to major in economics. You know, if I hadn't taken that class, who knows? I would not. I would do computer science or something mm -hmm. like I have no idea what I would have majored in. But literally just because I had one like slightly snarky teacher who liked <laughs> similar music to me. I was like, yeah, I'll fucking base the future of my life on this degree, you know? Crazy. You so, needed a Michelle Pfeiffer to come in and turn her chair around and teach you that poetry's just another way to yeah, rap. Dude, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Math is a lot like hip-hop. <laughs> no, similarly, just one last thing there is that yeah. when, I, when I did Teach for America to start teaching, I was really terrified of being a white savior. Mm -hmm. You know, I was horrified that I was doing the thing where it's like, I, first off, I wasn't even a teacher. I had a fucking, I was working at a, as an Office Depot manager and I had a degree in economics mm -hmm. at a school which was not the highest school on the list, even though I loved every second of it. And doing a degree I didn't give two shits about. Like I very quickly was like, man, economics isn't worth a damn thing. And mm -hmm. I'm not, I, I got an economics degree. The way I rationalized it was that it was like a business degree that wasn't a business degree. You know, I could use it in the place of anywhere that would want a business degree, but I would be different from all of the kids that had business degrees, except yeah, it didn't a... work out that way at all. And now I'm here. But anyway, I was terrified of being perceived as a white savior. And the second I got into education, that did melted away because it was like clearly not the case. They are struggling to stay above water here and they'll take anyone they can get. Yeah, that's why TFA exists. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, if it's any consolation, most teacher prep programs aren't doing anything any any better to prepare people to go into the classroom. But white saviorism definitely does permeate a lot of the educational sphere. Chapter three. Yes. Chapter three. The experience of the Paris Commune, 1871. Wherein lay the heroism of the communards attempt. After the revolution, the coercive character of state power shows bolder and bolder. That's a quote that I really appreciated here. Let me see if I can actually find it. Lenin's doing more of that. It's not known to nine-tenths, if not yeah. 99 hundredths of the readers of the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, I mean, he's talking about opportunism again, but mm -hmm. in the kind of inverse where he's saying, like, now that the revolution has happened, these social democrats, these self-proclaimed Marxists are saying, like, oh, they shouldn't have taken up arms yeah. or, like, a class should know its place. They shouldn't have taken up arms, I think, is really poignant in, in a lot of things today. Think about like the George Floyd protests, like they shouldn't have rioted, they shouldn't be destroying our yeah. private property and all that stuff. Not that, I'm not saying that that's like revolutionary action, but if we're thinking of it as a mass movement, it's funny to see the parallel between like a group of people rising up and taking an action which they view as like the last action possible, mm -hmm. right? The, the language of the unheard essentially. And then to hear the same kind of reactionaries, if I'm trusting Lenin here, which I am, that they sh they shouldn't have taken up arms, right? They should have waited, you yeah. know, do do it peacefully through the regular system. I think that, again, just to get back to the main thing that Lenin's saying here is that violent revolution is unavoidable in that sense, which I do agree with, unfortunately. I agree as well. One thing I will say doubly interesting is that Engels was 
out here predicting World War One. I. I love that Lenin talks about Engels' quote from 1891, literally 20 years previous, where he's like, all of the rivalry of conquest and the imperial powers has come to the point where it will take up the world in flame, you yeah. know, like, like it will explode the world. It's like, man, he really foresaw the cycle well in advance, you know, like Marx and Engels both, I think, were really... Not prophetic. That's that's too magical. But like they really had a a good grip and understanding of history and what was going to happen. Lenin even describes Marx as like viewing history, but with like a, a, a huge philosophical base and a humongous like historical understanding. Here's one thing I do like here is that talking about misquoting Marx. Here's the quote that I was mentioning forever ago when he says in the block quote, one thing especially was proved by the commune, the working class cannot simply lay hold of ready-made machinery. It's just interesting that the kind of translation error there that Lenin is describing where he's saying that, is it Bernstein or, or Kotsky? Kugel, Kugelman, perhaps? He's not saying that you can't take hold as in you can't seize the means of production. That's not what Marx is saying. What Marx is saying is that you cannot use the old state apparatus. Again, that, that's like the two main points that Lenin's making here. One, that the state is the proletariat, organizes the ruling class. And two, that you must smash the old state apparatus in order to create a new democratic institution that will then live for Yeah. I do like how they talk about a reversion to a primitive democracy there. That was one of the quotes that I have marked yeah. here. They, I, I was interested, too. There's the naivety of primitive Christianity, and that kind of piqued my interest because I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about. Like, is he, is he talking about the community around the church? Is he talking about, like, a clan community? That kind of communal democracy? I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to. Yeah, nor I. And I marked this mostly because I had it as a question. I didn't exactly understand even what he means by quote, primitive democracy, because when, when he gives that quote, he writes, the transition from capitalism to socialism is impossible without some reversion to primitive democracy, and then adds a little parenthetical himself. He says, how else can the majority and even the whole population proceed to discharge state functions? He says also, and secondly, he forgets that because he's shitting on Kotsky. And secondly, he forgets that primitive democracy based on capitalism and capitalist culture is not the same as primitive democracy in prehistoric or pre-capitalist times. But he doesn't really go on to describe or define what his primitive democracy is then. So I'm still kind of lost. Yeah, I was going to say it's 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 a little bit up to interpretation. I interpreted it as rather than uh, you might view like a representative democracy as a more advanced democracy, perhaps primitive is like literally mass direct democracy yeah. like he means in that sense like every man votes yeah for lack of a better term like uh, like a tribal sense yeah. of democracy yeah. That, that yeah that's what i was thinking also it's like everyone in the tribe is fanon actually in wretched of the earth talks about how he wants to pull it back to like a communal system where the whole village is involved and it's in a, a very laid back joking sense like everyone's just talking about what they need and what their issues are mm -hmm. And like, I really do love that image. You know, it is a it is a more like community based form of politics. And I think even in this, towards the end of chapter three, he talks about that a little bit when he's talking about the comparison between Marx's centralism and Proudhon's federalism. He's saying that all of the farming bodies are centered around the local town. It's mm -hmm. like there is like almost a tribal sense there, like a like an old clan, I suppose, you know. One thing that I was curious of is like Lennon talks about getting mired in the forms here, like trying to find the form 
that's something that like a social Democrat does because they're too worried about like what it's going to look like. But I am curious in that sense. I like already the kind of spoke and wheel idea of a town and then there's farms around it. Mm -hmm. Do those lead to a central government in that sense? If we're going to create institutions that are then going to wither away, is it valid to have these town units going to a central state or Maybe I'm at risk of falling into the social democrat definition here, but that does sound a little bit like a federal system where we have, you know, all these different bubbles essentially of like productive forces around towns and communities mm -hmm. that are then interlinked. You know, maybe this is a we need a little more reading yeah. here. It's it's tough because even though Lenin is answering the question of what do we replace the smash state apparatus with, it's still a little bit I think up to interpretation, mostly because we don't know about the commune. Yeah, and I think also for someone in his position, it has to be malleable or formable to a degree. Like you can't, couldn't necessarily go in with such a rigid expectation of exactly the form that it's going to take because then you would find yourself not able to react to the situation at hand. Yeah. And on top of that too, I think that if he is thinking about the withering away as a gradual process, then it is not necessarily a bad thing to start at like a level of centralization. And then maybe like that withering away includes that dispersal True. of forces. True. If we're talking about self-management, which is something that Lenin specifically describes here, where's the balance between the self-management of the workers in charge of the means of production and then the will of the state, which in this case is talking about like the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. You know, and then also how do we channel that will into like actual orders, I suppose? How do we tally the will of the people, especially in a country like Russia? I can't imagine Lenin in 1917 being tasked with pulling all of these disparate peoples together to try to form one nation, mm -hmm. especially because like the east of Russia had been conquered, right? It wasn't part of Russia forever. It was conquested. Anytime we start talking about or you start talking about history, I'm like, I believe you. <laughs> yep. Gosh. No, I mean, I totally fair. Totally fair. That's how I feel when we talk about philosophy. I'm like, I have no idea. There is still a lot in chapter three that confuses me, where I just, especially when he starts talking about the commune, a lot of his descriptions, I felt, were very kind of confusing or, or unclear to me, so I wasn't entirely sure what he intended. But I will say, in section two, where he's, what is to supersede the smashed state machine He's referencing Marx in the Communist Manifesto, and he says of it, it was an answer that indicated the problem, but did not solve it. And that's why he endeavors to go on talking about his answer, which is where he gets into talking about the revision to primitive democracy and everything like that. I mean, just to kind of get into the brass tacks of like what it means to be as part of the commune. I think there is an interesting question of like, if the world made a workman's salary, I had the thought yesterday, like, what if, if the government cut everybody $15,000 a year in a check, mm -hmm. how many people would quit their jobs? You know, how many people would do something else? Probably a fuck ton. And I had that thought because the idea that we pay our public servants a salary in America is to prevent corruption. I know, a laughable, a laughable <laughs> thing. We just call it lobbying. Mm -hmm. But that's the idea. And I think that I'm not going to speak so authoritatively to say that the Soviet Union fell into the same issue, but the idea that their public servants were prone to corruption because they weren't making like the same kind of money. They were making a workman's wage. How do they avoid that kind of thing? I mean, this kind of gets into the more economic side of Marxism, where it's like, are we talking about the the abolition of money, like hard currency? Mm -hmm. I don't know what that looks like specifically. And I think that that's a struggle 
that any Marxist is going to have to answer, especially if your question is like, what are we replacing this machine with? If the goal is to have ministers that run institutions in a free, fair, and democratic fashion, then the way that they're compensated is something that is really important. Because until we get to the point where everybody's needs are completely taken care of, that will be the core consideration, I think. Yeah. I mean, there are people that, are, that will do ministerial work out of the goodness of their hearts. I'm certain of that. but. Not everybody, yeah. you know, and that goes for any job, essentially. It's a weird question there. I, I wrote down, like, is Marx predicting UBI here? Like, is he doing <laughs> universal basic income? Everybody gets a workman's salary and then you just do whatever. He's the OG Yang gang. Yeah, there you go. Oh, God. <laughs> What's Andrew Yang up to? Actually, he started his own political party. Oh, oh yeah. He did the forward party, yeah. right? Forward it to my fucking, fucking grandpa. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting one. It's like... Because he's really, he is getting into the brass tacks here. How do we actually organize society? A really pressing question for a man about to do armed revolution for yeah, real. right? I'm curious to see how he saw the development of this program. Because it's, I mean, we said in the beginning that he is resolute when he's writing this stuff. Like he is, oh, yeah. he is as confident as it gets. So I'd love to see the shift from his theory into practice in real time. And I mean, nothing I've read ever has given me that perspective, especially here in America. Same. My final thoughts for chapter three, mm. I have a few just like kind of disparate quotes that I wanted to throw out. Yeah. He says, to decide once every few years which member of the ruling class is to misrepresent the people in parliament is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarism. And I was, I just wrote lesser of two evils in the quote next yeah. to it, next to it uh, vote blue no matter who, you know, this kind of bullshit. For someone to read that line and be like, oh, imagine the misery of deciding every few years who's going to exploit you and in what way they're going to exploit you. What misery that must be like. I just thought it was funny. He's talking a lot about why parliamentarism is is not an appropriate path to take. And he says, we cannot imagine democracy, not even proletarian democracy, without representative institutions. Yeah. But we can and must think of democracy without parliamentarism. If criticism of bourgeois society is not mere empty words for us, if the desire to overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie is our serious and sincere desire, and not a mere election cry for catching workers' votes. It's the AOC eat the rich dress at the Met Gala. Yeah. Is your goal truly to elevate the working class to a position, to the means of their own liberation? I guess that's twofold. One, do you believe that the working class is being oppressed? Which the answer should be yes. Yeah. And two, do you believe that the means of their liberation is to elevate them to a position of power? Not just to ameliorate from on high. Yeah. I feel like I've said ameliorate a they can liberate themselves. You know, actually, fuck paternalism, man, because the more paternalistic thing is to say we must do it for them, mm -hmm. right? The market must sort it out. I think that that was kind of the discrepancy I was having earlier when I was feeling uncomfortable about the Vanguard Party. But if the idea is that the Vanguard Party is the people, then the people are making the party and the people are making the moves. Yeah. I think my reservation, my reservation with the Vanguard Party is kind of back to your point about the potential for corruption when you have someone in a position where in any sort of position of power or authority, there is potential for corruption that goes along with that. And so if we have a Vanguard Party that is there to set the course, supposedly working on on the side of the people, but if we're doing that in any sort of representative sense, which we would be doing, then there is potential for corruption there. And that worries me. 
Mm-hmm. But if they are doing what they are, what their stated goal is to do, which is to to elevate the people to a position of power and authority, then then I, I'm all for it. You know yeah. what I mean? It goes back to those three words. It goes back to the institutions being elective, responsible, and revocable. Revocable is really a key there because mm-hmm. the ability of the masses to take back that representation, I think, is something that is sincerely lacking in most representative democracies. Even if those levers are in place, the willingness, knowledge, and ability of the people to pull them is lacking, right? We have checks and balances here in America, right? Even some that are bestowed to the people, but the political participation in this country is not nearly enough for those to be used in a fashion that actually allows representation. That's great. Yep. All right. So for next week, read the rest of the book. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? Any feedback that you have for the show or even just words of encouragement would be great. You can send them to leftunreadfeedback at gmail.com. Leftunreadfeedback at gmail.com. Bye, everybody. Oh, have a great day.